public health issues are not just health issues, they're public issues. And that's why everybody needs to be involved in this. I quote Clemenceau, who in, during World War I said, war is too important to be left to generals. Well, pandemics are too important to be left to scientists. That's author, CNN anchor, and Washington Post columnist Fareed Zakaria, describing the balancing act that America faces in the fight against the pandemic. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. Zakaria says mixed messaging has been a problem from the start and calls the lack of testing availability one of the biggest failures in the U.S. response. We didn't get it right during the Trump administration. We haven't gotten it right under Biden. He draws a sharp contrast to the development of vaccines, but blames some leaders, especially in the Republican Party, for sowing doubt. Every one of the GOP leaders you are talking about, Margaret, is vaccinated, including Donald Trump. So they all believe in it for themselves, for their family, but they will not tell their followers. Zakaria is also watching the Russian troop buildup near the border of Ukraine closely. A high-stakes meeting between the U.S. and Russia has led to no progress. What would justify military intervention then, Fareed? A full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine with an attempt to actually incorporate it back into Russia. At that point, we would have to ask ourselves, is there a way to militarily deal with this? He reflects on his relationship with Firing Line's original host, William F. Buckley Jr., whom he brought to Yale to debate Senator George McGovern in 1984. I first met uh, Fareed Zakaria when he was the undergraduate president of the Yale Political Union. His sharp mind and pen have moved him very quickly to young eminence in foreign policy analysis. And there's his own political journey leftward, and how Zakaria sees the Republican Party he once embraced right now. What's happened now is the Trump revolution. The right has essentially become a populist, nationalist, somewhat racially oriented party. And I think that that transformation would have people like Buckley spinning in their graves. Fareed Zakaria, welcome back to Firing Line and Happy New Year. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you, Margaret. As 2022 gets underway, Omicron is driving a surge in cases and hospitalizations, and there is fresh debate over what our public health posture should be. Now, you finished writing your most recent book, 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World, back in June of 2020, when roughly 125,000 Americans had died from the virus. We're rapidly closing in on 850,000 American lives lost. How for Reed have your 10 lessons for the post-pandemic world held up? You know, actually, surprisingly well. Um, I think there, I did do in the paperback edition, which is available now, an afterword where I, I made, you know, I pointed out the areas where I did learn something. But for the most part, uh, they've actually held up pretty well. And if you look at the the biggest challenge the United States has had, what I pointed out in in the book, and it's sort of I think lesson number two, it's not the quantity of government, but the quality of government you have, that our public health system is not really designed for public health, uh, by which I mean it's designed for private health. We have a healthcare system where if you're rich or if you're insured, you get pretty darn good uh, health care. If you're not, it's pretty miserable. 
But the most important part is that it's private. It's not public. Dealing with a pandemic, you require a collective response, not an individual response. Because really what matters is, are you able to stop the spread of the virus? Can you therefore get collective data? Can you get every, you know, do you know where everyone is in terms of vaccinated, unvaccinated, tested, untested? Can you get everyone to abide by the rules? Can you get people to, uh, you know, agree to modify behavior? If you look at the simplest divide two years in, it's really between uh, East Asia and the rest of the world. And in the East Asian countries, what you see is a much stronger ability to do collective uh, uh, public health. And it's for two reasons. One, it's they're, they're better at government. It's not bigger government. They have actually, in many cases, smaller government than, than, than in the West. But the second is that, and this is what I write about in my kind of 11th lesson in the afterward, it's not just about the state. Those societies are also comfortable with the idea of collective action, collective organization. Uh, you know, think about these countries are often like Taiwan, uh, South Korea, uh, New Zealand. Um, they're smaller, they're island nations, Japan. The one big exception is China, which managed to do it even though it's massive. Uh, and that's because they used a level of coercion that no other country uh, tr has even tried. But for the most part, the big issue is can you do this collectively uh, or is your system better designed for individuals? And you write extensively about the kind of government we have and where our government really failed in the face of a, a mass pandemic. But first, I want to ask you about another theme you wrote about, which is the experts. <laughs> and, and you wrote about how there was a messaging problem that really plagued our public health response. And you use the example initially of, of mask guidance. You wrote, quote, the public narrative about mask wearing from the U.S. government was fundamentally disingenuous. Officials actively discouraged the use of masks, claiming both that they were ineffective at protecting ordinary people and that they should be reserved for doctors and nurses. So looking back, was that changing mask guidance coming from on high where you would pinpoint the initial loss in public confidence with the experts, quote unquote? It's a very it's a very good point, uh, Margaret. I hadn't thought about it in those terms exactly, but I think you're right, which is that that initial uh, miscommunication uh, turned out to be very, very damaging because it became the first experience that the public had with the public health authorities was confused, contradictory, and then they reversed themselves. Um, you know, you, if you couple that with the failure of the testing, the the, the CDC's testing uh, kits initially failed. Those two things, I think, created a sense of incompetence and a lack of clarity about communication, which were very damaging. Uh, I, I think it's important for us to understand that Science is very important. We need to understand science. We need to follow it uh, and all those things. But there are two important caveats I would make to that that I think people, you know, if broadly speaking, I think on the left tend to not pay attention to. First, science is a continuing enterprise. 
Science is not a static answer to every question. Science is mostly a method of inquiry. So as you do more testing, as you do more uh, data analysis, you will learn things that you didn't know. So we're still learning about Omicron. We we just learn more about Delta. You know, so don't be surprised. And scientists and public health officials should make clear: look, we're acting on the best data we have now, but this might change. Uh, and here's how it's here's why it might change. The second part of this, and I think that is equally important, is to realize public health issues are not just health issues; they're public issues. Both words are important. It, it, you know, doctors and scientists don't get to decide for everybody in a democracy what policy is going to be. And we don't blindly follow because, frankly, they have one particular perspective. For example, in their case, it is minimize the spread of this of this disease, which is the most important uh, objective. Uh, it is an absolutely the one they should have. But it's not the only one. We also have an economy that we have to think about, and if you say the, you know, that you can st- slow the spread of this of this virus by fifteen percent by shutting down the entire economy and putting, you know, fifty million people out of work, we would say that's not a risk reward ratio that makes sense, and that's why the public, politicians, st- other statesmen, other of experts like economists, urban planners. Everybody needs to be involved in this. I quote Clemenceau, uh, who in, during World War I, when, when was overruling a general, said, war is too important to be left to generals. Well, pandemics are too important to be left to scientists. It's not that their perspective is not important, probably the single most important one, but there are other issues you have to think about. You, you have to think about what is the price of shutting down a society, shutting down an economy, putting people, uh, kids out of school, and you got to balance the two. And that's why ultimately in a democracy, this has to be done by all of us, not just by the, the experts. There's a lot to learn from the postmortem. Um, but in some ways, Farid, it seems to me, the experts, quote unquote, aren't learning from their own mistakes. And you see this example of New Year's week, where the CDC shortened the quarantine period for those who test positive from 10 days to five days but without a test-out requirement that countries like England, for example, have. So there are experts out there who are saying this is a bad decision, and others who are saying, well, it's a realistic decision based on the testing we have available, which is that it is not readily available. So look, is this another example of the experts botching the messaging and just not leveling with the American people? I, you you raised exactly the right issue, which is in in the case of the the uh, the five day quarantine. I think they didn't add the testing requirement because testing in the United States, uh, if, you know, this is our biggest failure at some level, which is we don't have uh, ra- easily available tests and we don't have them cheap. I was in uh, Italy for a week during the the, the uh, over Christmas, and you could get you saw um, uh, rapid test kits there for. I think it was a euro, maybe a euro and a half. So it's two dollars. You try to buy them in in uh, at a pharmacy in in the United States, and they're somewhere in the range of ten dollars. You know, they're often twenty five dollars for a kit with two. So the CDC was trying to not place a kind of onerous burden on people. But again, maybe you should, you're right that they should say we would recommend a test, but if you can't, you know, if for some reason you can't get it, it's okay. But but again, this is a perfect example of 
it, it, the, your, your only consideration is not the scientific one. Obviously, scientifically, the best thing to do would be to test. But you also have to take into account the real world. So I think they came up with a reasonable answer. Uh, maybe they should have explained it better. On this question of testing, Fareed, you know, on December 21st, the Biden administration announces that they they have they're supporting a plan to send 500 million at home tests to Americans for free. Now, we're in the middle of January and the first tests have still not shipped. This is on top of the Biden administration's short sightedness in preparing the country for the surge that would inevitably come through the holiday season. What is your sense or view of why the Biden administration has fallen short? You know, it's actually a perfect example of the the first point I was making. We're just not very good at public health. So from the start, you know, it's been two years now. Um, from the start, it is obvious that the thing you needed more than anything else was good, cheap mass testing, because that's the simplest way to figure out whether people are infected or not. And more importantly, whether they're infectious. That's the, the the beauty of the antigen test is it tells you whether you're infectious, which is really the most important thing from a public health point of view. You might test positive on a PCR test for weeks, even months sometimes, when you are no longer infectious. And then it kind of doesn't matter from a public health point of view whether you have COVID or not. What matters is are you spreading it to other people? So that's the core thing we needed to get right. We didn't get it right during the Trump administration. We haven't gotten it right under Biden. Now, I contrast it with the vaccine, and it's a very interesting uh, contrast, which is the vaccine, the Trump administration set up a very good system, Operation Warp Speed. They were not able to execute the deployment as well uh, for reasons we can go into. Fundamentally, they didn't really believe in government. Uh, the Biden people take the 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 baton from uh, the Trump administration and deploy the vaccine fantastically. Probably the best rapid deployment of the vaccine in the world. But then they hit a plateau because the problem is no longer supply access. It's that a number of people don't want to take it. Okay, but why did we get the vaccine right and the as was as much as you can? I mean, in a free society, if people won't get vaccinated. There's limits to what you can do. We got the vaccine right because it's a very American solution. It is a simple technological one shot deal where you solve the problem, and we're good at that. And and it the private sector can you know can deliver it. Um, we're good at that. Testing is an ongoing institutionalized bureaucratic response that, you know, it doesn't get, it, you're not done with it. You don't just poke a needle in somebody's arm and it's over. It's part of a whole system that has to be able to deliver and then deliver and collate the results and share the data. We're terrible at that. You know, for example, even now with these rapid tests, it's kind of weird that there isn't a simple way to report the data. Again, it could be voluntary, but you could have a simple thing which said, here's an app. You just go on and say, hey, by the way, I tested positive. So our numbers on Omicron are almost certainly massively wrong because every home test is not being counted. But we're bad at that. We're bad at that kind of public health and collective uh, response and sharing of data. Um we can do, you know, there's something about the vaccine that is a little bit like the moonshot. You know, you do it and you're done. You you get the vaccine, you jab it in people's arms, it's over. Um, 
I, you know, it's an interesting question of what to do, because I feel like one of the lessons of the book, you know, the first lesson is we're going to have a lot of this kind of stuff. We are, for a variety of reasons, we are disrupting nature in many different ways, from factory farming to the urbanization that's taking place in Asia and Africa. We're, we're probably going to bump up against a lot of this kind of stuff that requires collective responses. As you compared and contrasted how different countries tackled the pandemic, you write a passage in the book, and then there is America, which has long charted its own course. Was this exceptionalism the cause of the country's inability to tackle COVID-19? Does that failure shed light on broader weaknesses of the world's most powerful country? It certainly highlights a specific American vulnerability. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I, I do tend to think that. Look, I'm an immigrant. I love this country. I voted with my feet. I came here. I've made my life here. So I want to be clear that, you know, I'm saying this as with an immigrant's love for the country. There is a danger when you start to think that you are special, unique, different, that you don't learn as much. You don't look around. You don't say, what, how, how do other people do this? How What can I learn? Um, and it's interesting to me that you know, you look at Britain and the United States, which in some ways are the two places that tend to think of themselves as very exceptional, birthplace of democracy, all that kind of thing. And they both handle this quite badly. Um, and I do think that when you look at problems like our public health system, our situation with gun homicide, um, our situation with homelessness, you know, we don't ask ourselves often enough, well, what can we learn from the rest of the world? What can we learn from other? Bill Gates had a great line where he said, whenever I uh, was at Microsoft, when we confronted a problem, the first, the two questions we would ask ourselves is, who in the world is doing this better? And what can we learn from them? Well, you know, the, the public discourse in this country, we don't ask that question very often. We don't say who's got a good healthcare system and what can we learn from it? Who somehow has, you know, low rates of gun homicide and what could we learn from it? Uh, who has a prison system where you don't have repeat recidivism, people going back in and out, cycling back and forth, and what can we learn from them? Um, and that, that is, I think, related to a certain to, uh, to a certain degree to the exceptionalism. It, it's not a cultural thing. You know, I, I'm struck by, for example, when you look at these East Asian countries, one of the reasons they did so well was they did badly with SARS. So if you look at Taiwan, mm -hmm. which really gets the gold medal in some ways, Taiwan did very badly with SARS, but they learned from it. They said to themselves, okay, what did we get wrong? How did we get, get it wrong? South Korea did very badly with MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. It was a, the worst hit country outside of the Middle East. But it then said to itself, we got to revamp. We got to change our public health system to do that. How often do we do that in America? Not that often. And yet, the role that the U.S. played in funding and developing the vaccine feels like an example of American exceptionalism, or at least American leadership. Absolutely. You know, and it's one of America's great strengths, which is we are, we are a very rich country. We have the resources to do stuff. We had an amazingly innovative private sector. And in a way, this, this public-private partnership is a tried and tested one. If you think about the development of uh, the, the computer chip, if you think about Silicon Valley in general, uh, so much of it was the government identifies something crucial 
it pays an enormous amount of money and the private sector develops it. Uh, so in the 1950s, the United States government bought, I think, 60 to 70% of all computer chips that were made at a very high price so that it would drive down the, the cost eventually and make it accessible to the private sector. Uh, the vaccine, similarly, no private sector would have been willing to, ma to make the kind of billion-dollar investments. Um, you remember what the, what the government said, and this is, again, to Trump's credit, We'll, you know, we'll give you the money. You build the factories before the FDA has approved these 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 vaccines. So if it if it doesn't go right, the government will suffer the billion dollar loss. But if it goes but if it goes well, all you have to do is repay the loan, and then you know all the profits are yours. That's a that's a very American system. That's what we did with Tesla. Tesla got a seven hundred million dollar loan from the government when it was near bankruptcy. Um, we're good at that. It's a little bit different from the mythology of the American free market in that at time and time again, the government has stepped in, but not to run things, not to uh, administer things. It's, you know, our system works best when the government pays and the private sec sector executes. So maybe there's a lesson there and maybe we should be doing more things like that. The United States set a new pandemic high for hospitalizations this week. You wrote in the Washington Post just last week that it is not time for, quote, lockdowns, school closures or owners travel restrictions. You said, quote, we must have different rules across the board for those who are vaccinated. And I saw you told Bill Maher just before Thanksgiving that vaccinated Americans should get to decide what level of risk they are willing to take. So on a practical level, give us some examples. Sure. I think that if you are triple vaccinated, if you are vaccinated with a booster, if you are being careful about using masks, and if you are using tests, if you want to have a dinner party or a you know a Christmas thing and twenty or thirty people there, and I I went to a couple of these where they asked everybody to do a test that morning, send in the results. That seems to me a reasonable level of risk in a free society. Um, is it zero? No. Or Omicron is, you know, it does break through. But I think with all those with all those factors, what you're saying is the chance that somebody is going to get seriously ill in that circumstance that I described is very low. The chance that they're going to die is essentially non-existent. The chance they're going to get, get hospitalized is vanishingly small. And let me just remind all of us that Every time you drive on an American highway, you are taking a much higher risk than what I just described. Now, if you're unvaccinated, it's a whole different game because you will very likely get uh, Omicron. There's a greater likelihood you can have a bad case of it and you could get hospitalized. That's why I make that big distinction. But that's the kind of risk reward thinking we have to engage in. You know, We shut down the economy and we didn't think to ourselves, okay, what is the other thing we could do? What about like massive intrusive testing and isolation of the small numbers who are who have the disease? And people said, well, that's that's too intrusive. You're, you're, you're depriving people of their personal liberties. But we just shut down the economy and put 50 to 70 million people out of work. And we shut down a few million businesses. Isn't that a deprivation of liberty, right? Like we're not, we, we need to think about this more sensibly. Do you think there are certain rules that should apply to those who choose to be unvaccinated? I think 
one way to think about it would be to think about the cost element, because they are placing a burden on the public health system disproportionately higher than the vaccinated. We know this from the statistics. We know it from the science. So why shouldn't they have to pay something? I mean, the, the Canadians are thinking of essentially having a tax on non-vaccinated people because they're saying, you know, you are forcing us to cater to you in emergency rooms, do all these kinds of things where there is a cost, which all of us are going to bear. And it seems unfair given that you have easy access to this very simple medical, life-saving medical procedure. Maybe that's, you know, that's an answer. Macron in France is uh, basically saying, I'm going to make life very hard for people who are unvaccinated. But I think that the important thing to understand is you have a lot of freedom in this country, but you don't have the freedom to ask, or you shouldn't have the freedom to ask other people to pay for your mistakes. That feels to me like for all those who believe in personal responsibility, that that cuts the wrong way. It brings me to the mandates, the vaccine mandate conversations. And, you know, of course, there are arguments about the constitutionality of vaccine mandates. But what I think we've seen a real dearth of, Fareed, and I'd love to get your take on this, we've seen a real dearth, particularly from GOP elected leaders, of creativity in terms of figuring out how to achieve the public policy end of having the most people vaccinated, right? How do we encourage, incentivize, or penalize people for not becoming vaccinated if we're not going to mandate it. And that's, it seems to me like where we've fallen short. I mean, you've just articulated this, you know, potential tax in Canada. Um, But why haven't we seen more energy around trying to achieve the public policy outcome we all desire, apart from the mandate conversation? You know, it's part of a much larger issue that you've talked about on this program often, uh, which is the, the cowardice of the GD, GOP on issues where they think the base is wrong. Um, and I say I, they think the base is wrong using a very, very simple piece of evidence. Every one of the GOP leaders you are talking about, Margaret, is vaccinated, including Donald Trump. So they all believe in it for themselves, for their family for their children, for their close friends, everybody we know, and you know this, they're all vaccinated, they're all boosted. But they will not tell their their followers, their their, their base, look, this is important. This is this is life-saving. The reason I've gotten it is is X, Y, and Z. And the and, and you see this in the the percentage of anti-vax. You know, you know, we are the least vaccinated among the advanced industrial world. Most of Europe is at about 80% vaccinated, 85% in places like Spain. Um, The United States is at 62, 63%. Why is that? Have we always had a strong anti-vax movement? No. We had a small anti-vax movement. It's been a fringe thing. But if you had looked before this pandemic at the opinion polls, and I looked at this, the French have a much stronger traditional anti-vax movement. The French have always believed much more in kind of natural care and homeopathy and all that kind of stuff. It comes out of a, you know, they don't like GMOs. There's a very strong naturalist movement in France. The U.S. has not had that. Our anti-vax movement was a few percentage. And when you look at the many vaccine mandates, as you know, we have lots of mandates. In most states, you can't go to public school without having lots of vaccines. There was a very small number of people who would opt out. So what happened this time? 
this time it got caught up in a, in the politics, in the politics of the lockdowns, in the politics of, you know, what then became the Biden administration forcing people to do it. And all these GOP leaders won't get step out there and say, you know, we think the, the Operation Warp Speed was brilliant. We think the vaccine has been a, a, a technological and medical miracle. We are taking it and we think you guys should take it. As you know, every now and then one of them will 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 squeak up, uh, including Trump when he you know when Biden praised him for uh, for the vaccine, he finally came out and said yes, they're a good thing. But it's very sad. It's a complete law a lack of leadership, and it has produced this unique problem in the United States. It is why we are the least vaccinated uh, country in the advanced industrial world. Is a tax on the unvaccinated something we should consider? I'd be I'd be uh, interested in you know we have an we have a constitution that it makes it harder to do this kind of thing, but how about calling it a public health charge, um, and say you know if you don't want to take the vaccine, you, you know you have to do a public health charge. I I would certainly I I'm in favor of making people understand that they cannot burden the public and all of us all all taxpayers with something that they can easily you know, take care of themselves. You also write in detail, Farid, in your book about how the pandemic has accelerated the pace of change, including increasing income inequality, but also shifting how the workforce operates. From where you stand now, what are the most sort of serious, consequential, long-lasting effects you see from the pandemic? Well, it's really the two you mentioned in terms of our day-to-day lives. Unfortunately, it really has widened the gap uh, in in terms of inequality, um, if you look at the Federal Reserve puts out these charts, and most of the time when you have a recession, the top twenty five percent of income earners and the bottom twenty five percent lose jobs at about the same pace. I was sort of interested to realize that that generally speaking, if we go back over the last four or five recessions, the pattern is pretty much the same. This recession caused by COVID was unusual and almost unique. The bottom 25% really lost jobs. They lost jobs on a scale that compared with the Great Depression of the 1930s for that year, for 2020. The top 25%, however, actually gained employment during COVID. And we know why this happened, right? It's because the digital economy roared as the physical economy slowed down and was shut down. And so people who are skilled at the world of the digital economy um, people who do computer programming or, or manage, you know, to put together these kind of Zoom events or anything that you can do online uh, grew. And so you're, and by the way, of course, those people who are digitally savvy generally make more money than the dishwashers and the people at a Disney theme park and ushers and theaters and things like that. Um, so you widen the gap between the top 25%, the bottom 25%, the digital elite and the non-digital non-elite. Um, and then it happened globally. The richest countries in the world, which can afford to rack up debt, they're doing fine. They're, they're coasting through this. The poorest countries in the world that can't easily borrow, they've been screwed. So you're seeing these, these uh, differences widen. The second one is I think we're going to work in a completely different way. 
coming out of this, the, the pandemic. I made this prediction in the book. And as you say, I wrote it in the first six months. And if you remember last year, lots of people, lots of CEOs were saying, oh, we're just going to go right back to normal. We are going to just, everyone is going to be back nine to five in the office. And it hadn't worked out that way. It hasn't worked out that way, partly because of Delta and Omicron, but it has mostly not worked out that way because of massive pushback from employees. I think what we are now going to come to realize is that the office uh, that we that we all went to and and kind of lived in was a kind of 20th century version of the 19th century factory. We had everybody come at the same time. They all stayed the same amount of time. They worked in the same place. They had lunch in the same cafeteria. They went back at the same time. But the truth is the information revolution has made that totally unnecessary. Um, why does everyone have to go one hour to a building to sit down in front of a computer that is about as powerful as the computer they have at home to do work on the computer that they were going to do at home? Why do they have to all be physically present when most of the time they're not interacting, right? So I, I believe what we will come to is this hybrid model where, of course, there will be offices and they will be very important. But the office becomes the place where you go to work together, not to work. You can work anywhere. You will use the office when you need to work together. I mean, I think I imagine this is true for your show, for mine. There are points at which it's very important for actually physical contact. Uh, for example, when we edit, uh, it's actually very helpful to have a producer and an editor sitting in the same room in front of the same edit machine. But when we bat around ideas, I mean, sometimes we do it in person, so we, not, not anymore because of Omicron, but um, most of the time we did it on Zoom. There is a loss. You have to learn how to do group meetings on Zoom, make sure that everyone is heard, make sure that, you know, I find small disagreements don't come up on Zoom because people feel like it's a big deal. So you have to you have to work around that. You do need some morale building, so you need the team to come together sometimes. But it's a whole different way of thinking about it, right? Suddenly you say to yourself, the physical meeting becomes the, the somewhat rare, highly prized, important event. The routine communications become Zoom communications or uh, Microsoft Teams, whatever it is. I think that's a very fundamental difference. I think all these CEOs who, who think about it should should understand that. And the, the key is going to be, and the people who succeed are the people who are going to come up with the right hybrid model. It's not going to be all one way or the other. Fareed, this isn't your first appearance on Firing Line. You, in 1999, were a guest on one of the final episodes of the original Firing Line with William F. Buckley Jr. And he gave you a glowing introduction. Listen to this. I first met uh, Fareed Zakaria when he was the undergraduate president of the Yale Political Union and presided over a debate I had there with Senator George McGovern on the question of whether Ronald Reagan should be re-elected president. His uh, sharp mind and pen have moved him very quickly to young eminence in foreign policy analysis. Quite a compliment. I, I, you know, one of the biggest challenges we face in America is nobody wants to listen to people they disagree with. And I think that's the heart of democracy. You know, you have to be willing to listen to people you disagree with. 
And, you know, Bill, who became a great friend of mine, and uh, I mean, I learned so much from him, and he was incredibly generous personally and professionally. Uh, Bill Buckley, in a way, um, epitomized that, because here he was, this arch-conservative, and if you watch Firing Line over the years, I mean, he had Noam Chomsky on, he had, you know, he had people who even today um, wouldn't, be, you know, wouldn't be on liberal shows. And yet Bill Buckley had him on at the height of the Vietnam War. So that level of, of comfort with a real contestation of ideas was at the heart of Bill Buckley's worldview, at the heart of firing line that that he built. And it was one of the reasons so many of us admired him so much. And at the same time, Fareed, your politics have had their own journey since the time you appeared on Firing Line and since the time you were the head of the Yale Political Union. How has your political journey, starting with the right, how has it progressed? Bill and I used to joke about this. The last time I saw him, uh, we went sailing on uh, off the coast of Connecticut in one of his uh, his boats that he loved to do. And he was very generous personally, and he would never try to needle you. But he started to tease me about it. And I said to him, look, I think the best and most honest answer would be this. Uh, I have changed a certain amount, but the right has also changed a fair amount. I would argue that the right has changed more than I have. Um, and, you know, maybe there are others who'd say it the other way. And he said to me, that's a four, that's a fair point. And, and he felt the right, by the end of his life, he felt that the right had changed a lot as well. Um, look, I came to this country as an immigrant. I was um, very fervently anti-communist because I grew up in India and I'd seen real life communists and communism. Um, I thought there were so many liberal pieties that people in the third world uh, espoused, you know, about non-alignment and solidarity with the socialist international that was all nonsense. I liked Ronald Reagan's muscular anti-communism, and that was the defining issue. So a lot of my my conservatism in those days yeah. was a kind of fierce anti-communism. Um, I also came out of a socialist economy, and I knew it didn't work. And I found refreshing the emphasis on markets uh, and individual uh, liberty that people like Margaret Thatcher and Reagan talked about. I was always socially very liberal, but it never seemed important at the time. Um, it just yeah. wasn't the central issue that people were dealing with. The central issues were communism and free markets. And so when I when the 90s come around and Bill Clinton moves the Democratic Party to the, you know, the Cold War is over, so there's no more communism. Bill Clinton says the era of big government is over and he becomes a free trade, free market uh, Democrat, as does Blair. I suddenly realized that I was very comfortable with that kind of liberalism, uh, which to me felt like a hearkening back to the liberalism of, of, of people like Franklin Roosevelt. People, people think of Roosevelt as being a big government, but actually, in, you know, by today's standards, it was a very limited, vigorous uh, government. So I found that Clinton and Blair's liberalism was very appealing because it was uh, it was unapologetically pro-market. It was they were tough in terms of uh, international affairs. If you think of the you know interventions in in uh, Kosovo and uh, even the dealing with Iraq, and then the right starts to embrace more and more these social issues that I was never very conservative on. 
I mean, I remember the big debates. People now forget about them. In the mid-90s, the, the huge debates were about abortion, gay rights, and then the kind of attack on Clinton. And I always thought that this happened because the left stole the core issues from the right, which is the core issues for the right had been anti-communism and markets. Suddenly, Clinton says, you know, I'm, you know, anti-communism is irrelevant and I'm in favor of free markets. And so the right says, okay, we are different from you because, and now they start emphasizing abortion, gay rights, you know, Christian prayer in the public and schools, et cetera. And that just wasn't my world. It wasn't my agenda. I, I thought it was a, I, I really, I'm a very modern person. I think that this whole kind of throwback to the idea that you're going to make America great again, that it was all great in the 1950s, the, the, the you know, the, Nostalgia as a form of political ideology, I find both uh, off-putting and and somewhat offensive because, you know, we've come a long way, women have come a long way, minorities have come a long way, and I think it demeans all that progress to 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 view it in those terms. But but just to to me to finish the thought because you you ask it exactly right. Do I get annoyed by the Democratic Party's over-reliance on regulation and taxation? Uh, yes. Do I think the cancel culture is absurd? Yes. Um, so I, I, in some ways, I'm not a great team member. It's And in my journalism, I always think my job is not to pick a team. My job is to look at the issue and ask myself, what is the best answer on this issue? And sometimes I agree with the Republicans. Sometimes I agree with, with Democrats. I mean, obviously... I have moved left. I would not dispute that. But I get into a lot of trouble when I write columns that say, you know what, on this issue, the Republicans are right. Or, you know, on this issue, I even wrote a couple about Donald Trump. And, you know, there were there were vanishingly few issues on which I agreed with him, but there were some. And I felt it was my responsibility to say that, not to be quiet about it. Is the right unrecognizable to you now? Does it represent any of the modern American conservatism that Buckley represented to you anymore? No, today you're absolutely right. It is unrecognizable because it had already drifted. So what I was talking about was the 90s. And that was a significant shift. And for me, it became a very difficult one to personally identify with the right. But what's happened now is the Trump revolution. The right has essentially become a populist, nationalist um somewhat racially oriented party. And I think that that transformation, uh, which which would, I think, have people like Buckley spinning in their graves, has made it completely unrecognizable. So that the right, and, and you can see this not just in Trump, but in Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and all these people, is anti-business in many areas. It's anti-free trade. It's very protectionist in many, many areas. Um, is not particularly interested in upholding, championing, encouraging, and spreading democracy abroad, core element of Reagan's conservatism, um, and instead is much more focused on this cultural nationalism, religious nationalism. That piece of it, I mean, there always was an element of that in the in the old right. I, I, I don't want to romanticize it, but the the leading lights of conservatism when I was a young man were intellectuals who believed very powerfully in the idea of freedom, the idea of individualism, the idea of liberty. When you asked uh, Bill Buckley what was the most important book that he ever read, he would say John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. 
Now, today, I don't think there is a single major Republican who, if they have read the book, and there is also a decline of intellectual quality, if they had read the book, would agree with it. Uh, because Mill is a, you know, it is a uh, beautiful statement of individualism uh, against the kind of collective populism and nationalism that is so infecting the Republican Party. Is the Republican Party in its current state a danger to democracy? I, I don't think that the Republican Party and its ideological framework is is necessarily a danger to democracy in the sense that, you know, look, people have conservative nationalist views that they they have those views or they even if they have somewhat racially oriented views. I mean, this is this is a free country. People are allowed to believe what they believe. Um what has made them a danger to democracy is the the feeling, the underlying feeling that I believe exists, which is that um, many conservatives believe two things. Um, one, that their country is slipping away from them, that there is some kind of existential danger of a radical transformation of America. I, I myself think it's nonsense. I think that as an immigrant, I can tell you my biggest challenge with my kids is to have them retain some tiny element of the old culture. They get they get Americanized so fast. They become such normal, assimilated Americans that they have no understanding of the old world that they that their parents came from. That, but 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 there is this fear. This fear that the country is going to be transformed and changed, and it's going to is is going to be destroyed. So that existential fear, coupled with the fear that you can't win legitimately just with elections. Look, in the last twenty five years, the Republican candidate for president has won the popular vote only one time: George W. Bush's second uh, election. Otherwise. They've either lost or they've won through the Electoral College and, and not the popular vote. What that has produced is this fear of democracy, this fear that if people vote, um, maybe we're not going to, we, 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 you know, we're not going to win. And then the America gets destroyed. So you put those two things together and it is a danger to democracy. And that's why you're seeing so many changes in, in election laws at the state level. That's why you're seeing, uh, you know, tr Trump in a sense, understood it early on when he, one of the first things he said, people forget when he ran in 2016 was, I do not commit to accepting the results of the election. I will see. Chris Wallace asked him the question, one of his, as usual, bold and pertinent questions. And Trump said, I'm not committing to it. We'll wait and see. I think that was, in my, to my knowledge, the first presidential candidate of the nominee of a major party to say that. I mean, I don't even think they said that in 1860. You know, this this is an extraordinary thing for a presidential candidate to say in in advance. I am telling you, I do, I will accept the the, the results if I win, <laughs> and and that has taken us down this very dark path. Uh, and so now, yeah, I do think, unfortunately, there are elements of the Republican Party that are actively undermining American democracy. I'd be remiss if I didn't try to squeeze in a question about another fledgling democracy that is fighting for its own autonomy. Um, in 2014, while the Russian annexation of Crimea was underway, you called the crisis, quote, the most significant geopolitical problem since the Cold War. Um, today, Russian aggression is again in the spotlight. 100,000 Russian troops have amassed in recent weeks near the border with Ukraine. Talks this week did not lead to a breakthrough. You have said that you are generally wary 
of calls for U.S. intervention, but that this is different because it involved, quote, whether national boundaries can be changed by brute force, end quote. Let me explain why I thought this was so important. The United States has created an international system after 1945 that is a transformation of international politics. Uh, Before that, if you look at the 100 years before 1945, you have massive world wars, regional wars, constant changes of territory by force. Uh, You take one part of of the the area between France and Germany, Alsace-Lorraine, it changed hands four times in the previous 100 years. Since 1945, the number of times that a, that that a country has simply annexed another country's territory is vanishingly small i mean it's a huge breakthrough in international relations you know so when russia invaded ukraine and annexed crimea it was violating one of the really the central achievements of this american rules-based international order that was created since the cold war so i thought it was incredibly important to take it really seriously, to try to really muster an international coalition against it, not to normalize something like this. Because, you know, the the the, the gap between order and disorder is very thin. And, and once you start normalizing this stuff, you can imagine a world in which we're back to this kind of constant war, invasion, annexation. So one thing I will say about where we are now is we have we have stayed together against the Russian annexation much more strongly than I than I worried about. So the biggest fear was that the Europeans, all of whom are dependent on Russia for energy, for natural gas, all of whom want to do business with Russia and generally don't tend to have a lot of steel in their spine on some of these kinds of issues, would give in, would cave. And I have to give credit here. I mean, this is where human beings matter. Angela Merkel, being somebody who came out of the world of communism, had a very strong sense that this was a defining issue for Europe and for the West, and she stayed strong. You know, we knew the Brits would stay strong, but to have the Germans stay that strong has been a very heartening development. So as I look forward at it, I'm not as pessimistic uh, as I might have been because I think, look, one of the reasons I was wary of American military intervention is we'll lose. I mean, unless unless you escalate to a level where nobody wants to escalate. At a conventional level, the Russians have almost 200,000 troops there right now, and they could put another 200,000 there. It's, you know, it's it's a suburb. The, 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 this is essentially a suburb of, uh, of Leningrad, uh, Ukraine. So how you manage to do it militarily, you, you, you want to win. There's no prize for losing with honor and losing with nobility. But if we can really keep an international coalition together, impose incredibly punitive sanctions on the Russians, threaten, you know, I think the Biden people are doing the right thing, make it clear to them that this would be a fundamental transformation in Russia's participation in the global economy. Well, then that's a very heavy price. Um, And the Russians would, I think, think once, twice and three times about it. Now, I do think we should be willing to negotiate with them on confidence building measures, on arrangements for a new, you know, arms control agreements, all that kind of thing. That I, I, I don't, I don't want us to be in a place where we a seem to feel like Russia has no security concerns that can be discussed. 
We are in unalterable opposition to them. They're not the Soviet Union. They're not a country spreading a worldwide ideology and fomenting revolution around the world. So we've got to find some space where we can have a workable relationship, but we cannot yield on the issue of an annexation by force. That seems to me one of the great achievements of American diplomacy and the world over the last century. And I, for one, I feel like that's something worth worth fighting for. So what is the red line then when it comes to U.S. response to Russian aggression? We don't accept the annexation of Crimea. We never will, just as we never did the annexations of the Baltic republics, just as we did not accept the Soviet sphere of influence. Um, we continue to support Ukraine. We give them the, the, you know, the support they need. Look, at the end of the day, what the Russians are fighting in the long run, in my view, is a losing game. They are trying to maintain a series of docile satellite states around them. Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, all of which are seeing to a de- various degrees a opposition to that to that model. Um, at the end of the day, in my view, in the long run, uh, time is on our side because we're on the right side. We're on the side of allowing these, these countries to have their own self-government, to do whatever they want, whether it's to be, you know, more Western, more Eastern, whatever it is. But we have to recognize that in the short run, um, the reality is Putin can dominate these countries. He can destabilize them. So we have to try to stabilize them. You know, Belarus and and Kazakhstan are not asking for American help. So we we shouldn't get involved. But Ukraine is asking and has been asking for 10 years now. And we should be... the symbol, the single biggest defeat for this Russian strategy would be an independent, viable, functioning Ukraine. It doesn't need to be a member of NATO. It doesn't need to be a member of the European Union. But if it were able to be independent, viable, functioning, in because Putin's goal is to make it dependent, dysfunctional, corrupt, you know, and hope that it will come crawling to the Russians asking for subsidies, for protection, for things like that. If we can help Ukraine stand on its own, that will be the, the single most effective way to deter the Russians and to and to send a signal to, you know, to the people in that region, look, if you want and if you have the if you have the capacity and the and the willpower, you will get we will help you. But you, you know, it's it's your it's your country. You have to fight for it. Is what would justify military intervention then, Fareed? A full-scale invasion of of Ukraine with an attempt to actually incorporate it back into into Russia. Um, I think that we would have to at that point we would have to ask ourselves um, how could you know is there a way to militarily deal with this? It's very hard, Margaret. The the point is, as I say, is you know, um, nobody you you don't, you don't get any. I, I am cautious always about advocating military force because I want to advocate military force when there is a reasonable chance we would win. The reason, if you remember back to the old days of the 1980s, that we were trying to deploy short-term nuclear missiles in Europe was we did not believe that we could win a conventional war war in Europe against the Soviet Union. That fundamental logic still applies. It would be very hard for us to win a conventional war against Russia in Europe um, on on those lines. The, The supply lines for them are very, very close and they're 5,000 miles away for us. 
Um, no other, the Europeans do not have the kind of armies, forward deployed, logistics based, uh, offensive armies that could that could handle something like this. So, you know, it it's um, these are the very tough decisions in life because it's a, it's a very tough problem. But you don't get any points for for failing with honor. I've kept you long, but I have one more. It's a uh, chapter two in your book. You describe the United States as having a deep anti-status tradition. And you say, you write the following. You'll see where I'm going here. Quote, Herbert Hoover had been deeply suspicious of government intervention in the economy and as a result, led a passive response to the Great Depression. Now, I know you are aware of my efforts to ensure that a more historically accurate review of Herbert Hoover's presidency and larger historical legacy is considered by the public. And so my question is, sort of given that Hoover's response to the Depression actually included starting the Reconstruction Finance Corp, signing the Federal Home Loan Bank Act, uh, helping pass Glass-Steagall, signing the Emergency Relief and Construction Act, which paid for $2 billion of public works, persuading business leaders to keep wages high, convincing railroad and public utilities to increase spending on construction and maintenance. Do you think it's fair to say that he didn't have, that he had a passive response to the Great Depression? And would you consider uh, that perhaps the mainstream historical narrative with with respect to how he handled the Depression doesn't fully capture what he actually did? It's not like you haven't researched this subject, Margaret. Um, So Uh, let me first tell you my view of Hoover. Herbert Hoover was probably the most admired man in America after the, the First World War, probably led one of the most extraordinary um, deployments of government power uh, in the aid program that he ran. Uh, and that was why he was so widely admired. That's largely why he, be, he was able to become president. I think what happened when the new, when the depression, when the crash and the depression hit simultaneously, honestly, is nobody knew what to do. So you're right that Hoover did a number of things that actually turned out to be very useful, um, some of which were were um, uh, adopted by Roosevelt, some of which were not. Um, He did have, I think it's fair to say, a fundamentally narrow and by our standards today, cramped view of what the government could do. He was constrained very much by his belief that you had to balance the budget. You know, he was a fiscal conservative in those in those ways. So was Roosevelt initially. As you probably know, Roosevelt tried to balance the budget initially. I would say the big distinction between Roosevelt and, and and Hoover was Roosevelt did have this more expansive sense of saying the government has to do something to, to change this. It has to change the mood of people. It has to give them confidence. It has to inspire uh, hope. And he was much more radically experimental. So a lot of what Roosevelt did first failed and he switched. And he did something else. So a bunch of the things he did, the Supreme Court ruled as unconstitutional. So he flips. And then he, by the way, threatens to pack the Supreme Court later on, which while, you know, it it, it ended up, he paid a political price for it. it the court got the message. All of a sudden, the court sudden, suddenly started to uh, allow m- many of the New Deal programs that they had previously uh, ruled unconstitutional. So with Roosevelt, I think you had this kind of suppleness, flexibility, opportunism, you might even say, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Hoover was a little bit more trapped in an older, more traditional view of government, 
which was very much the American uh, norm and consensus. Uh, and so it it is a kind of story, in my view, of a bit of a tragedy because the guy was probably one of the most competent men ever to be president. And he was not able to show that competence in this moment because he still felt too wedded to the old view. But my suggestion to you is I do think that the world needs a new biography of Her Herbert Hoover that fundamentally gets at the whole human being. Um, and who better to write it than somebody who could, in such a spirited way, uh, argue argue uh, the, against me in, in on this program. Fried Zakaria, thank you for coming and sharing your views. And thank you for coming back to Firing Line. This was a huge pleasure. And I, you're doing such an amazing job with it. I think Bill Buckley would be very proud. You're very kind. All right, Fareed, thank you. All best. Thank you.